And this morning's message is, Deliver Me from the Slavery Within. Last night, we learned that we needed deliverance from other people's expectations. Uh, last night, we learned that there are many, many pressures that come our way. And many times those pressures tend to dictate our conscience. And praise God that, that we can find freedom in Christ. However, if you really think about it, many of these pressures, though we ask God from deliverance, we naturally tend to gravitate back and become people pleasers. And so this morning, we're going to be dealing with the root cause of what makes us be people pleasers, what makes us fall into the trap of fulfilling others' expectations rather than God's expectations. And there is a bondage that the Bible talks about that we need to be freed from. And not just on a one-time basis, but on a moment-by-moment-by-moment basis. So I ask that you please um, keep a prayerful heart that God will speak um, to each of our hearts this morning. Let's bow our heads as we seek the Lord in prayer before we begin. Let us pray. Our dear Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for religious liberty, wherein we can come together and, and worship you and learn from your word without being harassed. We thank you that today also you've given us this wonderful holy day, the Sabbath day. A day you have set so that we can have an intimate moment with you. But Father, we understand that we are, just as the song says, sinners. And so we ask that you please cleanse us from all unrighteousness. May this day be a reminder to us that you can sanctify us. And so that, Lord, there won't be any hindrance for your spirit to freely move into our hearts and minds. We ask for the outpouring of the Holy Ghost to be upon here. I pray, O oh Lord, claiming the promise that Christ received, Isaiah 50, verse 4, you have given him the tongue of the learned, that he should know how to speak a word in season to them that is weary. And I know that all the promises in Christ are amen, are yes. So I claim that right now, that you please put your words in my mouth and that your words would be of effect. And I pray that you would also grant us the ears of the learned to hear what you want us to hear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Good morning for those of you who are just arriving. Come, come, have a seat. I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try not to move a lot because the, the microphone tends to fall. I have a weird ear. Um, but don't be focused on that right now. But um, this is a Sabbath school class. I am a Sabbath school teacher. I tend to uh, stay closer with people on Sabbath school. Uh, probably we'll try to see if we can do you know, a little... Um, dialogue, but, but it's, not, it's probably not going to happen a lot, but we do have a Q&A section later on, and, and um, I was talking to my sister as well as one of our church members last night who was here, and the messages that, that are being preached are messages that they've never heard before, and so messages that are somehow new to us, uh, we need to kind of dialogue about it and, and examine the Word of God together. And so we have a Q&A section this afternoon, and I, I, I ask that you write up questions down, and then we're going to be deal with them this afternoon. Um, but this morning, we're going to be talking about deliverance from slavery within. And if you have your Bibles with you, I ask that you please turn with me to Galatians chapter 5, Galatians chapter 5, and beginning in verse 1. Galatians chapter 5, 
beginning from verse 1. And the Bible says here, this is the Apostle Paul talking to the people of Galatia. He says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. It's very interesting that in this verse, we see many things, just as we see in many verses of the Bible. It says here that we had been set free. Jesus Christ had made us free, which means the freedom that many people long has already been provided. It's already been prepared for us. And another thing about this verse is it says that we actually need to stand fast. That means we need to watch out. We need to make sure that we're remaining in the liberty wherein Christ has made us free. Freedom is something that we have to continue to struggle for, to make sure I remain in freedom. I don't know about you, but have you seen the article that Adventist Review has just passed regarding um, the literature evangelist in Louisiana, Arkansas conference? There are people out there right now that are not allowing freedom of speech and freedom to express religion in that area. And somehow... Our people found it a necessary thing to fight for liberty. Actually, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, it says here, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free. I read it in my original language, in my original tongue, which is Tagalog, and it's translated in a very different way. And I said, why is it translated that way? Then I looked at it in, in the English Standard Version, as well as Young Literal Translation. And if we would look at it, it actually translates it the way it's translated in my native tongue. And the Bible says there in, in English Standard Version, it says that for freedom, Christ has set us free. For freedom, Christ has set us free. In other words, the reason why Jesus set us free or made us free is for the purpose of having freedom. The reason why Jesus Christ came down here is to give us liberty of conscience. The reason why Christ made sure that He would die on the cross is to make sure that you and I can make our own conscious decision regardless of any pressure that comes from without. Freedom is something that is very important to God. And freedom is something for Christ is a more than good enough reason to die for, to give you and I freedom. For freedom, Christ has set us free. And it is this freedom that God wants us to hold fast, to stand fast, to make sure we're in it, to make sure that we're making decisions not based on people's expectations, not based on what others are manipulating us to do, but rather stand because we've examined everything, we've examined all sides, and I make the decision for myself. In reality, we're all accountable to God individually. My parents, though they can influence me, are not accountable for my decisions. Each individual has their own accountability to God. Now, it's another interesting point here that freedom is something that God emphasizes a lot. Last night, we learned that where the Spirit is, there is liberty. In other words, if there is some sort of manipulation, if there is some sort of bondage, if there is some sort of captivity, the Spirit of God is not there. If the way we function is to manipulate other people, we can make sure that the Spirit is not moving through us. And why do you think freedom is so important to God? Why do you think liberty of conscience is so important to God? The Bible says in 1 John chapter 4, it's a memory verse that many young people memorize, as well as verse 16. God is love. God is love. And there's an interesting way in which love works. It says here 
God does not force the will of his creatures. He cannot accept a homage that is not willingly and intelligently given. A mere forced submission would prevent all real development of mind or character. It would make man a mere automaton. There is something about love. Love cannot be forced. There is also something about love. Love never works by force because it will no longer be love. To illustrate this, if someone comes up to me and has a gun and points at me and tells me, hey, JR, start dancing or I will shoot you. Do you think I will start dancing? You better believe it. (laughs) I want to preserve my life. If that person tells me, go do jumping jacks, do you think I'll do jumping jacks? You better believe it. But if that person tells me, love me or I will shoot you, it's impossible for me to do that. I cannot do that with no, what's this? Uh, I cannot do that freely on my own. You cannot force love. Love cannot be enforced. And actually, if we work through force, if, for example, um, I just learned this, uh, I, I'm starting to read about you know, how to discipline children, being married for two and a half years, it could happen any time, you know? And so I, I just learned this. It, it was actually written by an, a secular writer on how to discipline children, on how to use time out. You know, back then I thought time out is something that you use to motivate children. You know, like, you better straighten up or you go to time out. And when I read this article, the reason for time out is actually to have the child who is acting up have a silent time for themselves so that they can think for themselves what they're doing. It's not something that we use to threaten them. Discipline is not something that we use to to threaten children because look what it says there. It will actually prevent development of mind and character. I don't know if you're seeing that there. It would impede growth rather than let growth happen. Continuing on, another thing about love is love is God's character. And the law is the transcript of God's character, which means that God governs through love. Spirit of Prophecy says here, but in Desire of Ages, page 22, Sister White says here, the exercise of force is contrary to the principles of God's government. He desires only the service of love, and love cannot be commanded. Let me read that again. Love cannot be commanded. In other words, it's a demand type of command. Love cannot be commanded. It cannot be won by force or authority. Only by love is love awakened. That's an interesting point. It tells me that the way God works is through love, which means that God doesn't try to pin us into submission. Nor does He threaten us or punish us so that we would do what He wants us to do. You know, He doesn't do the discipline that we do. He doesn't do what man does to their children. If you don't do this, you will get a spanking. God doesn't do that. He wins us with His love. Stand fast in the liberty wherein Christ has made us free. For freedom, Christ has made us free. Which means that in order for a loving relationship to happen, there must be complete liberty for a person to actually make a decision for themselves. And I think this is something that is missing in our churches, missing in our homes and missing in our individual lives. As a matter of fact, God doesn't even expect us to initiate anything at all because we won't until we first get a revelation of who He is by seeing what He does for us. I don't know if you caught that. The way God works is He doesn't focus on what we need to do first. 
What we, he wants us to focus on is who he is first and what he does. And then by seeing what he does and who he is, then we can make the decision to do whatever it is that he commanded us to do. If we continue on, you know, it's, it's very interesting. The way we do church is totally different. This is something that is so foreign for us. You know, many people go to church for personal gain. And if we read this, there are those who profess to serve God. Their hearts are not moved by any deep sense of the love of Christ, but they seek to perform the duties of the Christian life as that which God requires of them in order to gain heaven. Look at the next sentence. Such religion is what? Worth nothing. If my reason for coming to church is not because I have seen the love of God, if my reason for paying my tithes, if my reason for going to church on Sabbath day is not because I have seen the love of God, but rather to make sure that I get to heaven, to make sure to fulfill the checklist so that I can be in heaven, that religion is worth nothing. It is worth nothing. The only thing that should compel us is the love of God. Again, this is a very foreign concept for many of us because many of us were pressured or manipulated into doing things when we were young. How many of you were pressured when you were young? I was pressured to go to church. I was pressured to do good in school. It's just I thought that's how the world works. Pretty soon later on, I had people under me and I put pressure upon them. And I know how to put pressure upon them because I became expert from my parents. Got it from them. I remember, you know, in, in church service, in church, have you ever had the problem where people always sit in the back and they never sit in the front? You know what I used to do? I used to call them out for sitting in the back. I used to make them feel bad for sitting in the back. And they would sit in front. You know, I thought I've accomplished my task. But sooner or maybe later, the people that, that are coming inside the church, whenever I would give lessons, start to become less and less and less. It doesn't accomplish the task. It doesn't accomplish the task. Because many of us were pressured and manipulated when we were children into doing things when we were young and probably thought that that's how it goes for heaven as well. You know, we have a ton of different pressures in this world. Last night, we talked about expectations from people. We learned that Jesus never followed the expectations of people. And because of that, he was victorious. He wasn't a people pleaser. He pleased the Lord. Another pressure that we tend to do is the pressure of rewards and penalty. I don't know if you're familiar with that pressure. Aren't we trained in our school system that getting an A is the best thing in the world? People say A for effort is like the best grade in your report card that you can get. You know, the, the pressure even moves to our parents. And when, when a valedictorian, you know, starts walking and goes into the podium, your, your parents would nudge you and be like, how come you're not there? Why aren't you up there? Now let me ask you though, will only A students get into heaven? If only A students, which A student? Is it only the valedictorian? What about people who get C's and D's and F's? Would they get to heaven? What does the Bible say? Right? If, if we look at the grading system of the school and transfer it to righteousness, will, will people who have A in righteousness, are they the only ones that are supposed to get to heaven? In Jesus' time, you know, the people who, are, who have A in righteousness are the Pharisees. And Jesus told them that the sinners, which are the F's and the D's, will go into heaven before you. We do this in church too. Don't we honor and promote those who made the most sales in canvassing? Right? We put him in front and let them give the testimony because he knows what he's doing. 
And sometimes in Bible working, you know, we interview the one with the most Bible study contacts, with the person who had brought in the most people in the church. And the people who, you know, who only had one Bible study contact, forget him, he's not doing his job. We do this too when we want to raise money. Don't we honor or make mentions of the person that had donated the most amount of money? The evangelists and pastors who win the most souls, you know, a hundred souls in a year, they get a special commendation. With 50 Bible workers, none of the Bible workers are ever mentioned. Very interesting. Or the musicians. Those who perform flawlessly, they get applauded. The person who, who worked so hard and practiced missed one note, oh, he doesn't get an applaud. You know, he doesn't deserve it. He made a mistake. All these pressures we put on, and, and these pressures that we use just to motivate people, just to make people strive harder, sometimes can cause depression for people. I remember, I mean, I've met so many people who, who stopped doing work for the Lord just because they cannot meet the expectations. And because they cannot meet the expectations, they start to think that something is wrong with them and that God is not blessing them and that God does not love them and they soon leave the church. Some people sink into self-pity just because they get D's and F's. And just because they cannot receive the applaud or to fulfill the standard that we had set upon them. But there's a greater problem than that. The great dilemma is actually that it's hard to convince people that this system is contrary to the kingdom of God. Now, why? Why is it hard to convince people that this is not how the kingdom of God works? People will argue with you, and you can put that in your question. Doesn't God reward those who are just? Doesn't God reward us for every work that we do? Doesn't the heaven have, have hierarchies? Aren't there people who will be closer to God in heaven and there are people who will be farther from God in heaven? Doesn't the, the great controversy say that? You know, we tend to justify and gravitate into lowliness of mind just to justify and make sure that this system of reward and penalty for those who do not deserve it can continue on in our lives. Now, why is that? Let's continue on. Uh, Galatians chapter 5. You're in Galatians chapter 5, and again on verse 1. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1. If you still have it there. Actually, and then we're going to turn to verse 4 afterwards. But in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, the Bible continues on to say that, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. There is a problem that Paul is addressing here. The bondage that Christ has made us free from, it says there that it's possible to be entangled again with it. That's why he tells us to stand fast. That's why he tells us, hey, make sure you're standing in that freedom. Because it, it's possible to be entangled again with it. It's possible to fall again with it. It's possible to not be able to completely get out of that system. That system of reward, it's possible for us to fall to that again. The system of meeting people's expectations, if we think we've been freed from it last night, it's possible to fall to it again. And the Apostle Paul will now tell us what is the main reason why it's possible for us to fall. And let's read in verse 4. Actually, let's read from verse 2, going down to verse 4. And the Bible says here, Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to the whole law. In verse 4, Christ is become of no effect unto you 
Whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. Now, to expound that a little bit, I looked at the New King James Version just for a deeper understanding of it. Paul is saying there, you have become estranged from Christ. That means you had been cut off from Christ. Christ became a stranger to you. And it says here, the reason why he he becomes a stranger to you, it's because we're trying to attempt to be justified by the law. We're trying to gain heaven through our own works. The bondage that Paul is talking about in verse 1, the yoke of bondage wherein we can be entangled again, is the bondage of legalism. The bondage of attempting to relate to God and attempting to gain heaven by my own works. Do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage, that bondage of legalism. A bondage of trying to be righteous by our own works. A bondage of trying to be righteous so that I can be rewarded. What is legalism, by the way? Legalism is an orientation toward God and salvation that is self-centered rather than Christ-centered. Let me say that again. Legalism is an orientation toward God, which means I can come to God through what I present. I can come to God on my own terms, my own works, my own doing. Does that sound familiar? It's, it should be familiar because we read it in Genesis. Remember Cain? He presented his own works, his own doing. Now, in justification by works, self is the focus, not Christ. Self is the focus, not Christ. We come to God based on what self can do. But didn't Jesus say the only way we can come to the Father is through him? It is self-focus, not Christ-focus. And there's another trap regarding this. Actually, I didn't put the quote up there. But it says here in Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, page 123, the effort to earn salvation by one's own works inevitably leads men to pile up human exactions as a barrier against sin. All this, which means all the effort to earn salvation by one's own work, turns the mind away from God to self. All legalism turns my mind away from God to focus on self. My brothers and sisters, we've identified the problem why it's possible to continue to fall back from the bondages that this world can give us. The reason for that is self is not crucified. Self has not died. By the way, legalism is different from heartfelt obedience. Again, legalism is different from heartfelt obedience. Obedience and legalism are two different things. And legalism can occur on both sides of the spectrum, whether you're conservative or you're liberal. It's more obvious on the conservatives because they tend to focus on works, on works, on works. But mind you, my brothers and sisters, remember when Jesus was talking about what's going to happen in the end time? And there are people who tells them, depart from me for I never knew you. What will people say to him? Hey, we've done many good works. And the Bible identifies them in Matthew, I believe chapter 7, if I'm not mistaken, as workers of iniquity. That means these people, they don't love church. They're actually sinners. And they come to God saying, hey, we've done many good works. Legalism is something that it will play a major part in the end times. And the root cause of legalism is none other than selfishness. None other than focusing on self. And 
On the quote here above, it says here, self is the hardest master to serve. There is a bondage that you and I need to be freed from. And that is from ourselves. From focusing on ourselves. It, it says here, and no one can serve self and Christ. The root cause for almost any issue, whether it's sin, whether you want to please people, is because self gets gratification. The reason why I want to get the, the A is so that myself can be applauded. So the reason why I want to practice so hard and do all these things is so that I can be the star. If we actually look at it, going back into the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, they were made in the image of love. Right? The Bible says that they were made in the image of God. We learned that God is love, so therefore they're made in the image of love. And if we, if we turn our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, a definition of love is actually found in there that I really, really love. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, the Bible says here, Love does not behave itself unseemly. And then the phrase, the next phrase, it says there, Seeketh not her own. Love does not seek its own. Which means if I have love, I'm not focused on myself. I'm focused on others. Now, however, when sin entered, just as Jesus says, he that committed sin is the servant of sin, sin tends to enslave. What comes with sin is the focus on self, and it enslaves us. And so what happens to us, if you turn now your Bibles with me to Philippians chapter 2, verse 21, we see that we've gone so far from God's original purpose for us. Right after sin, Adam became focused on self. He didn't care about Eve anymore. Right? He was ready to blame her. And Eve, she also wanted to pass the buck to the devil. And so in Philippians chapter 2, verse 21, the Bible says here, read it all with me, if you have the King James Version, for all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ's. Everybody seek his own. Everybody seeks the gratification for self. Everybody's focused on self. And it's interesting, you know, sin is rooted with selfishness. He that committed sin is the servant of sin, as said in John. Another thing about selfishness is that it can deceive us into thinking we're okay, even though we're not. You know, before God came into the picture, right? Adam noticed that he was naked. Eve noticed that she was naked. They covered themselves with fig leaves and they thought they were okay. But once God's voice came in, they found out that they're not okay. I don't know if I was in that situation, I probably would try to cover myself with more leaves. And that's what the Pharisees started to do. They put more exactions. Because the more things we do, the more work we're capable of doing, the, the more degrees I have or whatever it is, the more credit I get, it seems it makes me feel okay. It makes me feel covered. doesn't make me feel naked. Look at this in Steps of Christ, page 58. It is true that there may be an outward correctness of deportment without the renewing power of Christ. The love of influence and the desire for self-esteem of others may produce a well-ordered life. Self-respect may lead us to avoid the appearance of evil. A selfish heart may perform generous actions. Self-deceives. Sometimes, you know, have you ever gone to church and there's so many things that you do. Yeah, I used to do this. Uh, last night, um, Pastor Keala was talking about how some people had 16, uh, was that 16 offices in the church? You know, I fall in that category, maybe half of that. I used to do everything in church. Like I would be the welcome and then I would be the, the AY leader. Then I would be the personal ministries director. Then I'd be the one taking care of the PowerPoint. Then I'll be the one setting up the, the projector and I, I'm the guy in the soundboard and all that stuff. 
I was doing this, you know, I was thinking that, hey, I'm serving the Lord. You know, this is for the Lord. But later on, it started to burn me out and started to make me feel angry because people are not doing their jobs. You think that's a right focus? In reality, if I step back, the reason why I took those offices and the reason why I wanted to do those things is so that self can be seen. Or maybe that self can be covered with this religiosity, this dead formalism that so ensnares us. And do you want to know what's a good check? Whether we're in it for self or not? Let's turn to Galatians chapter 4, verse 29. You know, sometimes I try to catch myself if I'm all about self or am I really for God? Galatians chapter 4, and beginning in verse 29, um, the Bible says here, actually just verse 29, but as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the spirit, even so it is now. You know, the, one of the best ways to check whether that we're motivated by self is when we start to look at other people and we see ourselves better than them. When we start to look at at the people who are doing bad, and we feel good because we're higher than them, because we're not doing bad. It's the same thing. If you turn to Galatians chapter 5 and verse 15, but if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. We would bite and devour one another. In Luke chapter 18 verse 9, it's interesting here. Jesus is actually talking about the, the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. And he says there, and he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous. So these are self-righteous people. And what did they do? They despised others. When we start to see that we're, there is something better in us than others, we're on the wrong path. We're on the wrong path. When we start to see that, hey, you know, I get an A and this one's an F, I deserve more, we're on the wrong path. When we tend to get mad at people, because they're not doing their job in the church, we're on the wrong path. The Bible says that we need to bear their burdens. We need to bear their weaknesses. If we think ourselves better than others, we're deceiving ourselves. But you know, there's an interesting thing. Being so focused in self gives us so much unrest. The pressure sometimes is too much for us However, to crucify self, to deny self, is the hardest thing to do. To deny self is one of the hardest things to do, yet it is a key into experiencing true deliverance and liberty. You know the reward system that we were talking about? Okay, before that, let's read this. There are many whose hearts are aching under a load of care because they seek to reach the world's standards. They have chosen its service, accepted its perplexities, adopted its customs. Thus, their character is marred and their life made a weariness. It is the love of self that brings unrest. The many reason why many of us, we need deliverance is because we love self. You know, we, we talked about the, the reward system. Right now, maybe, we can say that, hey, you know what? Those principles are actually contrary to the, to the principles of heaven. You know, the, the reward system of giving A's to someone and then others just B's or, or making someone winner and other loser. Because the moment you make someone a winner, we also make someone a loser. And God is not like that. God is not like that. But why do we gravitate to that? Why do we always fall into that? Why do we love that system? You know, Teachers love it because they can manipulate their students into doing what they want. Don't we love it? Don't we wait for that moment when we would be applauded? Don't we wait for that moment where everybody would recognize us? You know, one of the things that people do nowadays is they make sure when something's happening, they catch it on video. So that when they catch it on video, they post it, it might go viral. Very interesting. We're enslaved. We're enslaved by the love of self. 
And it's so hard to get off from it because it, it hurts our ego. And not only that, we might lose our self-motivation. We might lose our self-motivation. But you know, there's a solution on how to get out from the bondage of self. Are you a person today who came in here who, who desire freedom, who desire liberty from the love of self, who desire freedom from becoming a people pleaser, who desire to be free from fear of seeing the nothingness of yourself? Do you wish your heart to overflow with the love of God? Then cultivate grateful thanksgiving for the unspeakable privilege of knowing the truth. Lose sight of self by beholding Christ. Lose sight of self by beholding Christ. You know, one, one of the interesting things, if we're looking out after ourselves, is that I don't want other people to know my dirt. The thing with it is, I love my sin, but I hate yours. You hate my sin, but I love mine. Don't touch it. The moment someone starts to tell us that, hey, you, you're this, you know, there's something wrong with you, bro. Maybe you need to, to come to Christ more. We, we're like, man, you're hurting my ego. Don't talk to me. You know, one of the, the hardest things to do as a preacher is, is constructive criticism. Sometimes after a sermon, you know, I would sit down with my wife and I tell her, you know what, hey, criticize me as much as you want. Once she starts doing that, you know, I, I, I tend to fight back. I don't know if I have a quote here. Oh, here we go. God calls for an entire serenity. You cannot receive the Holy Spirit until you break the every yoke of bondage. Continuing on. The abiding rest, who has it? That rest is found when all self-justification, all reasoning from a selfish standpoint is put away. You know, when we're sitting down and she's telling me that, hey, you know what, you say this too much. Hey, you know what, you tend to, to stutter. And I would fight with her and be like, no, I, I don't stutter. No, I needed to say that. And then I would sit there. Sometimes we would be driving back home, you know, right after a sermon. And I'm there and while driving home, you know, I have this unrest in my heart. Like, because I know she's right, but I want to fight for myself. And the only way that I can find rest is to finally take away all self-justification, all reasoning from a selfish standpoint. And then finally, I would be able to accept it. And then I said, praise God. It's hard. It's hard to actually deny self. It's hard to crucify self. But God makes it easy. It's hard to actually admit that we're broken. And reading this paragraph, it's a sermon by Sister White. And she says there, I love him, I love him, for he first loved me. He has broken my heart, he has broken it, and it is not good for anything unless it is broken. Your heart is not good for anything unless it is broken. But it's hard to accept that we're broken. It's hard to allow God to break our hearts. However, I'm going to turn to a story found in John chapter 4. John chapter 4. You're very familiar with the story. It's the story of the Samaritan woman. This quote says here that the battle which we have to fight, the greatest battle that was ever fought by man, is the surrender of self to the will of God. However, the surrender of self to the will of God is the yielding of the heart to the sovereignty of love. Remember how God works? He doesn't work by submission. He doesn't work by condemnation. He doesn't work by threatening. And if you, if you read here with me, for the sake of time, I'm only going to read one verse. The story is there's this Samaritan woman who goes into the well, you know, in the afternoon because she has a lot of baggage. 
She has a lot of brokenness that she doesn't want people to know. There are brokenness that she is hiding. There are brokenness that she's covered fig leaves upon. But in verse 29, all that brokenness comes off. Reading from from verse 28, the woman, after meeting with Christ, then left her water pot and went her way into the city and saith to the men, Come, see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Come, here's a man who told me every dirt, who knows every single dirt that I have. Is not this the Christ? I don't know about you, but people who know a lot about me, I'm very uncomfortable with. I don't want to stay close to them. Because myself start to stink. But when this lady met up with Christ, she went on and told everybody, this man knows everything about me, and I don't feel condemned. This man knows everything about me, all the dirt that I have, and I feel his love. And I'm ready to respond to that love. My brothers and sisters, If we admit our brokenness to God, we would not find a sense of guilt. We would find a sense of freedom. Freedom to know who we really is, and He will give the freedom so that we can be the person that He wants us to be. It's very interesting that you and I do not have love and that love can only be found in God. All the self-seeking will be lost if we focus on the selflessness of God. My wife is going to come up here. She's going to sing a song. And while she is singing, if you're a person who's suffering the slavery of self. Stand up and, and, and as a sign of you telling God, Lord, I have a problem. I love myself so much. I don't know how to be broken. I don't want to be broken. But somehow this preacher is saying that it's okay to be broken. And so I'm standing up and I want to be broken. It was very interesting when I was 22. If, if, if you know anything about me, before I, I found Christ, I tried to fix everything on my own. You know, ever when I was nine, my, my mother and my father told me that their marriage was something that is not legal. They faked it. So they're not really married. And so ever since, I tried to cover myself with, with, with fig leaves, you know, because in the Philippines, if, you're, if your parents weren't married, you're looked down upon. And I tried to, to make sure, you know, I, I get good grades so that people won't look down on me. And I tried relationship and I said, you know what, I'm only going to have one relationship and, and that's it. You know, I'm going to show people that you don't need to, you know, many girlfriends in order to have, what's this? In order to, to, to have good relationship as husband and wife. But when I was 22, everything was not going my way. When I was nine, I told God, look, Lord, if you don't fix this, I'm not talking to you again. At 22, I found myself broken. My mom hated me. I hated my mom. The girlfriend I was with at that time, the ex-girlfriend that I had, hated me and I hated her. Everything just was falling apart. You know, after 
how many years is that? 13 years? I had the courage to finally kneel down and say, Lord, I give up. I give up. You do your thing. If that's something that you want, I ask that you please stand up as my wife will now sing the appeal song. God wants us to be delivered from slavery that is within us. And the way in which He liberates us is to break us. But when He breaks us, there is no sign of condemnation because He Himself was broken. And because He loves us so much. Is there anyone else who would like to take a stand and say, Lord, I want to be broken for you. I'm surrendering all to you. If that is you, I ask you that you join us. God bless you, sister. God bless you. Let us pray. God bless you. Let us pray. Our dear Father in heaven, We thank you, Lord, that we can find deliverance in Jesus. And this deliverance, though we think it will crush us, it doesn't. Rather, we find a gentle, wooing spirit tugging at our heart. the sovereignty of the love of God. So, Lord, we're standing on our feet asking you that you please deliver us from self so that the other pressures that this world can give us would no longer have power upon us. For the motivation, the only thing that constrains us is our love for you that was initiated by your love for us. Do for us, O oh Father, what we cannot do for ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.